Hi everyone, I'm Bruce Collins and this is Exploring Boys Education, a podcast produced by the International Boys Schools Coalition. Today's episode focuses on the mental health of boys, which is particularly relevant at this time as the pandemic has disrupted the lives of so many in so many ways. Never before has it been more important for boys' schools and educators of boys to be intentional about the mental wellness of their students. In this episode, we dive a little deeper into this topic with Natasha Devon, a writer and activist from the UK. Natasha tours schools, colleges, universities and events throughout the world, delivering talks as well as conducting research on mental health, body image, gender and social equality. She campaigns both on and offline to make the world a fairer place. I know you're going to be challenged and encouraged by my conversation with her, but before we launch into the interview, let's connect with Amy Ahart, IBSC's COO, for this episode's IBSC Newsreel. Amy, it's so good again to welcome you back to Exploring Boys Education for the IBSC Newsreel. And I'm particularly excited about what you're going to be sharing with us today. Hello, everyone, and thank you, Bruce. Yes, we have some wonderful online programs starting in October, two of which are new online classes that respond to important issues facing boys' schools. So why don't we start then, Amy, with those two new programs? Bruce, first, we've partnered with Dr. Shimmy Kang again on a class that's based on her new book, The Tech Solution. Participants can take advantage of this exceptional opportunity to engage directly with Shimmy to examine cutting-edge neuroscience that reveals a new understanding around how we metabolize experiences with technology that will lay the foundation for lasting success in our digital world. Explore the short-term potential and long-term consequences of tech use. Get practical advice for tackling specific concerns in the classroom, such as tech addiction, anxiety, cyberbullying, and loneliness. Help your students build healthy habits and make smart choices that maximize the benefits of tech and minimize its risks. And develop a six-step plan to put healthy tech habits into action and reset unhealthy habits. I'm also pleased to share our second new online course, which is called Boys and Belonging. Participants will work through essential elements of creating a culture of belonging in boys' schools by developing an understanding of pedagogy and belonging, gaining insight into best practice to foster diversity, equity, and inclusion into schools, learning how to support transgender students in a single-gender school, examining new perspectives on masculinity, and exploring redefining success for students in boys' schools. Both these programs launch on October 12th, alongside our signature online class, Single Gender Education, which is an online course facilitated by Joe Cox and created specifically for teachers newly hired at boys' schools. Thank you, Amy. So much on the go and wonderful programs. Um, I want to encourage everyone who is listening to check these opportunities out. For more information uh, or registration details, head to our website, www.theibsc.org. Natasha Devon, our guest today, is a trustee for the charity Student Minds and patron for No Panic, which provides advice and support for people struggling with anxiety. She is a member of the Men and Boys Coalition, specifically consulting with them on reducing the rates of male suicide in the UK. 
Natasha is also a certified instructor for Mental Health First Aid England and the eating disorder charity BEAT. Natasha is a fellow of University of Wales Aberystwyth and advises them as well as Coventry University London on campus well-being. Natasha, Devon, it is wonderful to have you on Exploring Boys Education today. I'm really grateful for your time and sharing some of your expertise. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Natasha, I wanted to kickstart. I know people in the UK and we have a number of member schools in the UK. People in the UK will be very aware of your work, but we have other schools in many different regions in the world. Uh, Just give us a sense of the work that you do, particularly in schools and what keeps you busy on a day-to-day basis. Prior to lockdown, I was in about three schools a week um, throughout the UK and sometimes further afield. They do quite a bit of work out in the Far East and also throughout Europe. Um, I'll go anywhere I'm invited, basically. But the the work consists of um, I deliver talks on mental health and related issues, but I also conduct research predominantly with 14 to 18 year olds. And that is focus groups predominantly. And I ask those 14 to 18 year olds what's missing from their personal health and social education. And the reason that I do that is because I feel that when it comes to mental health education, the the key thing that young people and indeed everybody needs to understand is that we all have mental health. And it's something that we all need to have a relationship with in the same way that we do our physical health. And in order to kind of universalize the mental health conversation, I need to understand the challenges that young people are facing day to day. So rather than kind of framing the conversation around mental illness, instead, I take the answers that they give me. And then I work with experts in neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, and the social sciences to create lesson plans around things like um, academic anxiety and exam stress, bullying, friendship difficulties, social media, sexuality, gender, body image. Um, These are the kinds of day-to-day mental health challenges that young people are facing. Natasha, I see you're a member of the Men and Boys Coalition too, so I just wanted to frame that because our schools are boys' schools, and so you've had experience, obviously, in consulting around issues that affect and impact men and boys too. Yes, that's right. So the the Men and Boys Coalition is co-founded by Dr. Ben Hine, who is one of the experts that I work with. He's um, a lecturer at the University of West London specializing in gender. And it's a very broad church, the coalition. Um, I I, Mm. pride myself on the fact that I have been able to persuade several members that feminism is not evil and not about hating men. (laughs) Um, But I I did walk into quite a hostile environment as being a kind of um, a a public feminist, an outspoken feminist when I first arrived. But uh, the reason that I wanted to join the coalition is because um, certainly in the past it's getting better, but there is a huge stigma around boys and men showing any kind of emotional vulnerability. And that leads to, when you look at mental health statistics, you see that women are about three times more likely to receive a diagnosis of mild to moderate mental health difficulties like depression and anxiety, whereas men are much more likely to need to seek help for drug or alcohol dependency, and they're also far more likely to die as a result of suicide. 
So what, what we know when you put those statistics together is that women are more likely to seek help early to receive a diagnosis and to get appropriate treatment, whereas men are more likely to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol and or reach crisis points. So it's really important then, I think, to work out why that's happening. And, and I was seeing all of these mental health campaigns that were saying, you know, men just talk. And that, I think, is really victim blamey. It's, it's a bit like saying fat people eat less. It's like, well, they, if they could, they would. There's something about their life which is not enabling them to engage in that behavior. So I, I had done a lot of focus groups with young men asking them what it was that was preventing them from, from talking. And, and what they t told me, actually, is that in a lot of instances, they were talking, but they weren't using the same language or doing it in the same environments as a girl would necessarily and they were less listened to generally than girls and I felt that that was something that the coalition could benefit from hearing about so that's what I consult with them on just trying to um, you know the ultimate aim is to reduce the male suicide rate. And I think probably some of these issues are heightened now in 2020 I mean none of us would ever have expected that we'd be facing what we're facing at the moment. And so I'd like to explore, as you've introduced the topic of, of boys' mental wellness or mental health, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in, in children's, children and, and teens in particular in the time of this pandemic? Um, there must be some heightened response uh, to what they're experiencing. Yes, I've been doing digital mentoring with teenagers throughout lockdown and there's really three kind of key things that are coming out of it. First of all, they miss their friends and that might sound like a trivial concern, but of course, when you're a teenager, you have um, sort of unprecedented levels of dopamine in your brain. And one of the reasons for that is because you're, the whole um, your body and your brain, the whole nature of your uh, makeup is trying to encourage you to establish independence from your parents so that you can evolve to become the adult that you're going to be. And part of that process is this increased dependency on friendship groups. So your friends are really never more important than they are during your teenage years. So the absence of that interaction is really impacting teenagers hugely. Um, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is problems with motivation. So a lot of schools in the UK have been really good at essentially uploading the curriculum onto an online spa uh, space, doing um, digital talks, digital classrooms, um, digital one-to-one -one sessions with teachers. And it's fantastic that technology gives us the opportunity to do that. But nobody has taught young people how to motivate themselves to learn outside of a classroom environment. So they're sat you know, in their bedroom or maybe in the kitchen or wherever it is that they are. And everything that they associate with free time, with downtime, trying to understand, you know, how, how to timetable themselves, when it's appropriate to take breaks, how to find the motivation to do the things that they dread. And, you know, somebody who I'm a freelancer and I often work from home, that's something that took me years to properly establish. So, you know, expecting teenagers to do that is, is a huge thing. It's a whole new skill, isn't it? I mean, something that, that schools have traditionally not thought they'd have to prepare um, uh, teenagers or children for. Absolutely. Yeah, it is, it's um, a completely different experience to learn on your own 
Um, and then the third thing is perhaps the least surprising thing, just real heightened anxiety. And that's both anxiety about what's happening now, worries about kind of the health of their family, but also anxieties about the future, because um, I don't know if this is the situation everywhere, but we had exams cancelled this year in the UK. So it's, you know, all of the, you know, the education can be quite linear, can't it? And you, you have your sights set on this kind of end point. And for a lot of people, that's become really uncertain. So it's helping them to deal with that. So I'm I'm really interested to to know you alluded to it earlier when you were speaking about your work with the the men and boys mm. coalition. Um, how are we seeing boys process the stress or this anxiety differently? You know, I have I have a gut feel that possibly they're not talking about it as much, but I don't know if that just comes from your stereotype, you know, one stereotypical view of boys. Um, and and attached to that question is. You know, if boys are processing this differently or in their own way, what are the things of which schools or teachers of boys need to be aware about helping them process this anxiety that they have at this time? Well, I, I should say what I'm about to talk about it is based on generalizations and this won't be true of every boy or young man but um, generally speaking yeah. when we say that there is therapeutic value in talking that's not actually strictly true there's therapeutic value in connection okay. so if you talk to somebody who really listens and gets you and doesn't judge you then it does improve brain chemistry but that's not the only way to get connection you can get that sense of connection just being with a group of people who um where you feel completely comfortable and you can be yourself or through doing a shared activity so what i've seen is whereas the girls that i work with are saying i feel this i feel that the boys that i work with are saying i cannot wait for the gyms to reopen or i can't wait to play rugby again or football or to rehearse be able to rehearse with my band again and they're actually, they're saying the same thing because it, it's these shared activities for so many young people, particularly boys, that are propping up their mental health. You know, resilience, I had a therapist describe it to me brilliantly. The definition of resilience is how many meaningful connections you have in your life. And that can come from extracurricular activities as well as from people that you have a close relationship wow. with and you feel that you can talk to. And there's a, a brilliant uh, educator called Maggie McDonnell. Um, you can find out about her if you look her up on YouTube, but she she won Teacher of the Year in 2016. And she went to an, an area uh, called Saluit, which is in Nunavik in, in Canada, which is a kind of colonized area of Canada. And it's really, really cold. It's like the Arctic or the Antarctic. I always get them mixed up, but whichever. And um, there's a huge problem there with drug addiction and suicide, particularly amongst the young men. And she went in there and completely transformed the whole community through her work in the school. And it was through things like arts-based projects um, and physical activity. And it, it's amazing. If you, There's a, a YouTube video that you can find that just sort of summarizes her work. But for me, there's so much transferable wisdom there. So I would say, um, you know, for educators going back into uh, a classroom environment, it, don't assume that what a young person needs is for you to sit down opposite them and look them in the eye and say, unburden yourself. Actually, I, th I think what they need is to feel part of a community and, and a team again. I was wondering if you had any advice for teachers of boys who are checking in online with their students and not having that face-to-face -face contact. Um, 
how do you, how do you how do we make sure as educators of boys that our students are doing okay when there's this screen between us and the sense of disconnect and distance? So I find that um, generally speaking, again, this is a generalization, but uh, boys have a smaller emotional vocabulary. And that's not anything to do with something that's inherent to masculinity. It's just because generally speaking, they're less practiced at identifying and articulating. So I find it's really helpful mm. to think outside of language when you're working with boys. So something that I do is um, I'll ask them to rate their mood from, I'll normally say something like one to 13, because I find if you ask anybody to rate anything from one to 10, they just say seven and they haven't thought about <laughs> it. Um, so I, I want them to, so I sort of throw them off by giving them a slightly weird number. And then when they give the number, you can then ask questions like, when was the last time you can remember the number being higher? What happened between then and now? What would need to happen to make the number higher tomorrow? It's just a sort of different way into a conversation about mental health. Also emojis, um, you know, emojis are fantastic because they're so powerful that there are some for which there is really no direct translation. And yet we all know exactly what emojis mean. So getting them to rate um, how they're feeling using emojis. And there are apps that you can find that will allow you to do that for an entire classroom, which is great from a teacher's point of view, because, you know, I found, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a teacher, but I do, as I said, visit schools a lot. And having to take my work online, I've realized the extent to which when I'm standing in front of a group of young people, I'm constantly sort of editing the content of the talk in my head according to their body language. So if they kind of lean forward, I'm like, oh, they like this bit. Or if they look a bit confused, I go, I need to explain this more, or this isn't landing or whatever it is. But then suddenly you're just talking to a black dot in, in you know, the top of your laptop. And yeah, I've decided to just assume that I'm smashing it and everyone's loving it. But um, it would be really useful, I think, to have a kind of an idea of the overall mood of the class before you start. So if you've got emojis and it shows that, I don't know, 10 people in your class are feeling angry, that's something that's really useful to know before you begin. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my top tip, I would say, to try and think outside of words. That's wonderful advice, uh, Natasha, and I'm, I'm just smiling as you're speaking because I know of a number of educators who who have uh, developed and designed tools like that um, on their own as well, where they're they're doing daily check-ins with their with their boys. I'm wondering about the lasting impact of the stress and anxiety of this time of this time, and you alluded to it earlier. You know, we we're going to return to a face-to-face -face model of education um, sometime. We're not quite sure what that will will look like. Do you think there's a role for schools and teachers to debrief their students' experience of the pandemic or the anxiety that they've 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 felt over this time? Um, and, and are there specific warning signs that schools need to be on the lookout for um, when they engage with their students in their, their first number of weeks back in a face-to-face -face environment? Well, the leading mental health charities over here in the UK have called the rise in mental health issues during this time, a pandemic within a pandemic. And all of the youth facing mental health charities have seen a really significant rise in demand for their services. So I think we can safely say that it is having an impact. And I also think that some of that impact won't necessarily be seen until we return to the new normal, particularly if you know young people have experienced trauma or bereavement you know, that when we're going through something that is really traumatic, 
what the brain does is it it just kind of soldiers through and then it goes i'm going to take all the feelings that you you should be experiencing right now and i'm going to put them in a little box at the back of your brain and then we'll deal with that when you're in a better place so often you don't see the true impact until things are on a more even keel again so i definitely think that schools are going to have to be dealing with a, a really heightened um, increased amount of mental health issues and one of the things i'm campaigning for over here is for our chancellor rishi sunak to dedicate some funding so that schools can get additional staff because i don't think that the burden of that should necessarily be just on teachers um i think that we're going to need more kind of counselors and mental health professionals and support staff within the environment to to help deal with the fallout um the in terms of signs and symptoms to look out for uh, one of the things that i feel is constantly misunderstood as, as somebody i have an anxiety disorder myself and when i know that i am having a particularly bad day the first sign is that i'm irritable and we don't necessarily look at somebody who is acting up or being a bit angry or just a bit annoying as somebody who is vulnerable but you know i've had situations where i've gone into a school and i've said oh hi i'm natasha i'm going to talk to you a bit about mental health and there's been a boy in the class who has just done something that he knows is going to get him thrown out i mean the, the most extreme example was a boy immediately stood up and chucked a chair at the wall and and the teacher was like right out and i and i actually said to the teacher you know for for future reference that was the child that needed to hear it most because they they heard mental health and they went oh you know this is going to touch something that's you know i really don't want to go there because i'm struggling with this at the moment and so i think for for me because of the heightened anxiety i think looking for behavioral naughtiness and you know there are statistics to back this up and it's not just inherent it's our perception as well like when when a a girl is being a bit odd we'll say it's an emotional issue if a boy's being a bit odd we'll say it's a behavioral issue because of our bias our gender bias so i would say um looking for that would be a, a really good start i think in many boys experience you know i was a teacher of bo- of boys at a boys school for many years i think many boys would appreciate us as noticing those things and not just defaulting to this the stereotype generalized view of of who they are mm. so I, i really appreciate what you've shared there i i wonder about this exam question natasha you mentioned it earlier in the uk those end of year exams were were cancelled i know in many regions that's happened as well here in south africa there's a lot of anxiety particularly for our year 12s around their school leaver exam and when that's going to happen um how, how do schools of of boys help their students process the stress and anxiety of this curriculum disruption particularly where our systems of education seem so focused still on on exam results and exam results seem to carry so much weight um how how do we help students process that difference in this disruption It's a really good question and I think what you've hit on there is something there's this kind of inherent paradox in the way that we're talking about exams because on the one hand nobody's really quite sure when young people are going to be able to do exams again but on the other hand we're talking about hitting the new academic 
year running and focusing on core academic subjects and trying to catch people up. And that's that's a difficult thing to wrap your head around, particularly if you're the person who it affects. Um, I, I actually, I, I wrote a book um, called Yes, You Can Ace Your Exams Without Losing Your Mind. And I appreciate that it came out in April and I'm probably the only person in the world that could release a book about exams during the year in history, the one year in history when exams were cancelled. <laughs> but I, um, I, I think it was the right decision to go ahead and publish it because whilst I didn't know that COVID was going to happen, obviously, when I wrote it, um, I wrote it for people who are on study leave. So there are um, tips on there on how to look after your mental health at home when you don't have things like clubs and sports and music etc and um, there's tips on motivating yourself and there's tips on how to rub along with your parents or your siblings or whoever's at home when you are in a confined space and I think the key thing for anybody who has uncertainty around exams if you're saying in year 10 or year 12 currently is to first of all try and focus on what you can control so something i find really useful and, and again it's there's instructions in the book is is something i call the anxiety to-do list where you separate out the things that are worrying you into what you can control what is controllable but you need somebody else's help and what is completely outside of your control and this is what um, the, the guy that wrote The Chimp Paradox, uh, I've completely forgotten his name, but it's a very famous book, The Chimp Paradox, and he calls it boxing your chimp. That if you're, if you're really concerned or worried about something, if you articulate those fears, then suddenly it, everything becomes a lot clearer. And it's a very empowering exercise, I find, because it means that you can kind of point to all of that nervous energy towards things that have a tangible outcome. And then I would say the second step is to try and work out what your intrinsic motivation is and to make your studies match that because then you're going to want to do them and you're going to enjoy them regardless of outcome. So rather than focusing on will or will not the exam happen and if it doesn't happen, is there any point in me learning this? Instead, work out what your intrinsic motivation is. So it, it could be competition, it could be attention, um, it could be helping others and there are, again, tips in the book on how to make your studies match that motivation so that you are getting um, an intrinsic joy out of the learning experience. So it's, it's almost like a Buddhist thing. It's about the journey, not the destination. Those are amazing tips. And and I'll, I'm going to link to your, your book in the liner notes so that uh, people can check it out because I think that'll be a valuable resource. And speaking about your work, again, I, I want to thank you for, for your insights. I think you've shared so many um, amazing tips, and I think teachers will benefit from what you shared uh, today. But I want to provide you an opportunity, Natasha, to just share how people can get in touch if they'd like to engage with you and your work, if they'd like you um, to engage with, with their students at their schools. Um, share a little bit, what are the best ways of, of getting in touch with you Um and, and engaging with what you do? The best thing is to go to my website, which is natashadevon.com. There's lots of things on there that educators might find useful. There's a recommended reading list that you can download. There's a page with safe 
um, sources of further support and advice on a range of different mental health issues. And there's also the Mental Health Media Charter, which is a guide for anybody who wants to speak or write about mental health responsibly and safely. And whilst it was created for media, lots of teachers have said when they've been planning assemblies and, and lessons on mental health, they found it really useful. Um, so that's natashadevan.com. And then you can also find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Natasha Devon. Thank you so much again. Appreciate your insight and your time and your expertise um, and all the best uh, for your own work at this time where we're all under pressure to do things differently. Mm, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Natasha shared so much with us, but what has been confirmed for me is that as educators of boys, we need to be intentional about their mental health, offering opportunities in particular for connection in this difficult time. And we need to be observant, noticing where our boys are at. We'd also love to hear about how this happens at your school and what you're doing in this regard. To add your voice to the conversation, or if you have any insights you'd like to share, please send these as a voice note to me at collins at the ibsc.org or in a WhatsApp or iMessage to plus two seven seven one eight nine one one eight nine eight. As we mentioned in our last episode, we'd also love to start featuring boys' voices on Exploring Boys' Education. If you would like boys from your school to feature on one of our episodes, please also reach out to me. Again, thank you for giving of your time and listening today. I'll be back on air soon to explore more issues relevant to boys' education. Until our next episode, continue to keep safe and well.